This lesson is on communications and strategic flexibility. If flexibility in strategy is vital, then communication of a well-defined, well-articulated, well-transmitted, and easily understandable national interest, or commander's intent within the security world, or brand within the private sector, is fundamental. As U.S. Army War College, Professor Gabriel writes, taking lessons learned from one of Genghis Khan's most famous generals, and I quote, devise and utilize a strategic vision, for it is strategic vision that shapes goals, ways, and ends. It's only when an intelligence officer, a senior policy analyst, logistics expert, and trigger puller understand and internalize a central, deeply persuasive narrative may all work in concert with the ever-shifting tactical, operational, and strategic landscape. In warfare, when central command communications go silent and officers slain, a communicable strategic vision allows frontline troops to proceed with confidence, impunity, and prejudice, ensuring each action meets the national goal. Clear, simple, repeatable end states allow all elements of power at all levels to act with extreme flexibility to achieve a singular goal. This lesson, that is communications and strategic flexibility, is also the first of a set of three lessons. This lesson acts as a prelude to the other February lessons on communications and persuasion to senior commanders, senior staff, lawmakers, and policymakers, as well as strategic intelligence. And in this vein, with a view to looking at the other lessons in February, also when viewing strategy as a process, intelligence and information flow is especially vital. Planners must continuously receive intelligence and information in dynamic environments because an enemy, competitor, or ally's decisions will change because of or despite your initial strategic plan. As a process versus a simple fixed strategic plan, we must ensure to continuously change in reaction to changing interests of partners and adversaries, along with other internal and external friction. It is thus behooves us to update our analysis on allies, enemies, and state apparatus in civil society. It would be important to ensure capable communications and appropriate flow and control of information in all domains to inform the strategic planning processes. So a little bit about the readings. The Rumult reading, some of you have already read this chapter <clears throat> or the book. It is required reading in a number of fall electives, and it used to be required reading in many national security strategy courses. In my opinion, revisiting this excerpt has value, uh, especially in our process of deep learning and in deep reflection. Students in the past have seen this passage in a new light, especially once they've completed their core strategy education in the fall. For, mar for my part, I have read this chapter dozens of times, and I find new value in it each time I read it. So it, I think it really rewards the thoughtful reader. Then the Simon Sinek viewing or video. So although I would recommend the entire video, I think most relevant for this lesson uh, are between minutes 26 and minute 34. He provides some approaches to develop a strategic vision known as, again, commander's intent in the military, 
and branding in the corporate world that I think can be applicable to national security. And finally, we have the Ramsey reading. In the last decade, there has finally been a windfall in the successful, uh, that is a windfall in literature on the successful guerrilla warfare campaign in the Philippines between 1942 and 1945. And I'm not speaking about the Maoist or, or communist guerrillas here, but those that oppose Japanese rule. Ramsey, unlike the original commander of Luzon guerrillas, that's Russell Volkman, Volkman went on to uh, being a silent godfather for United States guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, and formal internal defense, and being one of the silent godfathers of the creation of the U.S. Army Special Forces. But unlike Volkman, Lieutenant Ramsey did not initially receive a strategic vision from General MacArthur, who fled to Australia. Instead, Ramsey had only the values he learned from the U.S. Army and the general intent that the United States and many Filipinos were at war with the Japanese to guide extraordinary feats, in my opinion. With this internal moral and strategic compass, he had to leave behind his training in Calvary and what I like to think mentally is rock climbing up a steep mountain of guerrilla warfare knowledge, learning from the writings of Mao minus the communist propaganda and bent and in many ways, he bested Mao, in my opinion, for how to drive and command an even more nebulous, even more flat, even more dispersed guerrilla campaign than Mao could ever dream of. In my opinion, Lieutenant, then Major, then Colonel Ramsey, showcased strategic flexibility and strategic communications with excellence in the most extreme environment. At least at first, he was cut off completely from any command and operating in unknown terrain, figuratively and literally, given the unique jungles and swamps and mountains of the Philippines and the island of Luzon. Leading all the way to guiding MacArthur's return, eventually leading to one of the least studied and deadliest battles of World War II, that's the Battle of Manila, which is not described in this particular book. So, on strategic flexibility. A guiding vision allows flexibility and execution. Communication of a well-defined, well-articulated, well-transmitted, and easily understandable and easily repeatable strategic vision is fundamental in strategy making, strategy execution. This allows operational leaders and partners then to have flexibility facing changing environments. We have to understand that lines of communication will become broken. A strategic vision will allow your younger leaders to execute your intent in shifting dynamic environments with confidence, impunity, and prejudice. Concise, simple, well-articulated grand visions that play into embedded foundational narratives to inspire and to transcend are more likely to be remembered by and to enduringly persuade and influence all warfighters, from the special operator to the security guard to the intelligence analyst to the mechanic. In war, communications will go down. It is not if, it is when and how often. Operators in support at all levels will need to know how to act without new orders, without commanders. I think in understanding a good commander's intent or strategic vision or brand, it helps us to return to the basics of what a strategic narrative is. So we're going all the way back to the first week of September and SLFC. This is just a very quick review. I'm not going to go into detail. What is narrative? There are four common themes 
to most of the literature, or much of the literature, I should say, on narrative. And this goes back about 2,000 years. Strategic narrative will reflect identity. It reflects the identity of a community, a nation, and a people. It can comprise deep-seated ideologies, belief systems, history, language, and even dialect. A strategic narrative, secondly, may also offer meaning. During developing events, it allows a community to gauge meaning, especially during times of unrest, times of warfare, times of instability. Third, a strategic narrative may comprise one or more stories. And if we are to study the story, or if we are to construct a story, we need to emphasize and look into or analyze the story's content, the storyteller, the storytelling craft, the means of transmission, how the story is received, how the story is understood, and how the story can alter either beliefs, mindsets, and or behavior. And fourth, a strategic narrative may be used with a purpose. So in addition to reflecting identity, providing meaning, and comprising one or more stories, a narrative may be used with a purpose, what's oftentimes called weaponized narratives. In our case, it's not really weaponized narratives, it's narratives to inform and persuade people within the national security apparatus, specifically your subordinates, to execute your plan with prejudice. Unfortunately, there's no formula for what makes a narrative great, but there are some common traits of successful narratives that we will be discussing uh, amongst our panel in plenary. Now I want to talk a bit about a plan versus strategy and how strategic communications uh, and information flow and sharing can play a role. Now this is relevant to this lesson, but it's central to the following two lessons. So it's central to the other two lessons that we have in IWS in February, specifically communications and persuasion, that's trying to persuade lawmakers and policymakers, and then uh, strategic intelligence. So plan versus strategy. Some scholars claim that a plan is when you identify objectives and you find resources and methods to meet said objectives. Also, we have to adjust the means, or the ends, excuse me, we have to adjust the ends so that realistic ways can be found to meet them by the available means that we have. That's your initial strategic plan. So what's the difference between plan and strategy? Many scholars, such as Lawrence Friedman, claim that the difference is that strategy or strategy execution demands flexibility. We have to understand the interests of our partners, our competitors, and adversaries. They differ. They don't have to be opposing. And there's going to be friction with ourselves and, of course, working with others. We have to understand that the strategies of partners, competitors, and adversaries, they will evolve. So we need to continually, continuously reassess changing interests, aims, and will, and maintain flexibility. And sometimes we demand strategic communications for radical change within our organization. And what this takes, first and foremost, and this really kind of leads to our strategic intelligence lessons in a couple weeks, but something that will likely be or may be part of our conversations and our seminars is the importance of the diagnosis of an issue. This is something that we that's talked about in the Romalt reading. And you start with a diagnosis of the issue. Okay, so your intelligence-led, intelligence leads basically strategy planning strategy making, and strategy execution. And that is to define and explain the nature of a threat, a challenge, an opportunity, 
to simplify overwhelming complexity, to identify certain aspects as critical, and to find systemic causes and critical vulnerabilities. You don't want to oversimplify things, but you definitely want to prioritize what is important about the nature of the threat, the challenge, or the opportunity. And by the way, this part of the reading, and as well as the guiding vision, this, that's the Romolt reading, this is very key to our final assignment, to your final memorandum and your final presentation. Uh, as you'll see, it was in large part, or I should say, yeah, in large part, it was uh, the assignment was inspired by Romolt's approach to communicating a strategy. So the credence needs to be given to the diagnosis of an issue, and we need to reassess our assumptions, leading to new intelligence-driven strategies and policies when appropriate. So I want to go back to the year AD 451, and I want to look at the Battle of Catalonian Fields. Up until this point, the Huns had won most of their battles, arguably all, but most historians would agree that most of their battles they had won and were feared across the Western Roman Empire. Roman, Roman commander Flavius studied Hun strengths and vulnerabilities quickly. He actually was part of an exchange program where he went and lived with the Huns as a uh, young person, as a young officer. So Flavius, along with Goths and many auxiliaries, uh, turned the Hunnish strengths into weaknesses. At the time, the Hun strengths included distance and standoff, and the use of longbows on horseback. The Romans used almost entirely infantry in this case, and the soldiers were fitted with armor, which is rare to have all of the soldiers and all of the auxiliaries fitted with armor, as well as swords. The Romans at this battle closed the distance immediately. Entire regiments. The armor repelled the arrows and spears of the Huns, and the swords ultimately defeated the relatively armorless Huns. The Huns just had some uh, basically leather and cloth instead of what we would consider uh, regular armor. The Roman planning, the recruitment, their alliances, and basic technology prevailed at the battle. After thousands were killed, Attila the Hun retreated to reassess this and future threats. He realized his entire army was going to be wiped out. He decided to throw in the towel and leave immediately. There was a major issue here. Something had changed drastically in the way the Romans were fighting. And he also knew that word could spread around Europe on how to defeat the Huns in the future. So he realized in order to survive, in order to continue his plan on having influence and control in some areas of Europe at the time, that he would have to drastically change. He would have to actually change centuries of Hun approaches. Really, he was changing the whole Hun culture of warfare as well as hunting and fighting. He had to change the structure, the strategy, the logistics, the training, the technology. He developed new catapults and how to plan to defeat the current and future threats. And he did this inside of a year, less than, uh, less than 365 days. This is an example of extreme strategic flexibility. Too often, we are wedded to our ways and fail to give credence to threats and challenges that change. And too often, we're driven by our current ways and technologies as opposed to intelligence-driven strategy. So until the Hun after this battle continued to be relatively successful on the battlefield because of these extreme changes that he took. Otherwise, he likely would have been decimated. His days were over. 
So, what does this mean, or what lessons can we take away? Well, we need to be effects-focused. We need to focus on the threats, the challenges, and opportunities that we have, and not only the physical tools that we happen to have at our disposal. We have to be able to call upon an almost infinite list of untraditional, near-zero-cost approaches in some cases. In some cases, it does take a lot of cost, especially in World War II uh, and the changing dynamic, for example, of the U.S. Navy. So if we are effects-based, we want to think of a flexible and comprehensive approach and integrate uh, cooperative efforts. So we want to look beyond joint operations. We want to look beyond the whole-of-government approach. We want to look what is called, for example, at USAID, a comprehensive approach. So that includes the government, the military and civilian, other coalition governments, international government organizations, so international cooperatives, non-government organizations, multinational partners, as well as private sector entities. And if you think, and this really takes us back again to that first week in September, and I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but if we think about a strategic interest aim or advantage, we have to think, we can think about means in a number of ways. And we have both the physical and the psychological. So not only do we sometimes need to change the physical means, the way that Attila the Hun did, but we sometimes have to change our mindset. And perhaps then, and I'm quoting here from Lawrence Friedman, we can think of strategy, if we think about the importance of flexibility, as perhaps a central political art. As Lawrence says, it is about getting more out of a situation than the starting balance would suggest. It is the art of creating power. So I want to take the Hun example and I want to juxtapose it to uh, words from Barbara Tuckman, who wrote the book Guns, The Guns of August about World War I, especially the years up until the beginning of the First World War. And here she is speaking about a Russian general officer who did not believe in change. He believed in the traditional ways of fighting war, and he very much wanted to remain the same. So she goes on talking about this officer. He believed that military knowledge acquired in that campaign was permanent truth. It was a campaign that he had been a part of years before the First World War. As Minister of War, he scolded a meeting of staff, college instructors for interest in such innovations as the factor of firepower against the saber lance and the bayonet charge. He could not hear the phrase modern war, he said, without a sense of annoyance. As war was, so it has remained. All these things are merely vicious innovations. Look at me, for instance. I have not read a military manual for the last 25 years, and he's boasting about this. In 1913, he dismissed five instructors of the college who persisted in preaching the vicious heresy of fire tactics. So for this lesson, we're going to focus on this idea of strategic vision, also known as commander's intent, also known as brand. The rest of this podcast is really, again, a prelude to the following two lessons in February. Thank you.